From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Belvo Latam's Plaid raises $43 million to scale its API for financial services. Crowdcube to launch IPO platform for retail investors as Curve smashes the Crowdcube funding record. And cash is to account for just 7% of in-store purchases by 2024. All this and much, much more on today's show. Uh, But before we start, we just want to tell you something that we're cooking up here at 11FS and hear a quick word from our sponsors as well. After Dark is back, and this time we're looking at the New World Order during a virtual live podcast recording on Wednesday the 16th of June. Join your favourite Fintech Insider hosts and special guests to discuss how Fintechs are accelerating innovation and helping to shape a new world order in financial services. Save your spot today via bit.ly forward slash After Dark NWO. And make sure you stick around after the show for networking and expert hosted roundtables. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Welcome to episode 534 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer and making his Fintech Insider debut, I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host for the day, Benjamin Enser. How's it going, Benjamin? Hi, David. Uh, it's going really well, thank you. The um, the weather has really improved in Britain over the last week or so, so it's gloriously sunny outside, which is making me happy, except that I'm, I've been working, and so, of course, I'm inside most of the time. And, you know, when you're in an air-conditioned office, you don't really notice the weather outside, but when you're working from home, you do. So I've nipped out occasionally between uh, uh, gaps and meetings and at lunchtime to just catch a little bit of sunshine. The sun is shining. Everybody's feeling good. I'm sure there are people walking along in the sunshine listening to this now and hope you're enjoying yourself. All right, let's get on with the show, though. There's, as always, we are joined by some super duper awesome guests making their Fintech Insider debut. We have Pablo Vigera, who is the co-founder and co-CEO over at Belvo. How's it going? Not too bad, David. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. It's been a bit of a busy week for you guys, but we'll be coming to that very shortly. So we'll we'll come to you next. Um, joining Pablo and making her Fintech Insider debut, we have Ashling Finn, who is the reporter at AltFi. Welcome to the show. Uh, I mean, it's been a pretty busy week in the Fintech space, and I know you've been writing about it in all different guises that we'll come to in a second, but uh, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's uh, funny, my uh, first and only Fintech event uh, just after I joined Altfight was 11FS after dark last year. So it kind of feels like I've come full circle, which I quite like. <laughs> uh, there you go. I mean, it's uh, these things happen. And Fintech Insider After Dark will be back very shortly as well. So we hope you'll be coming to the next one. Anyway, let's go on with the news. There's been lots of things that's happening. Uh, first up, we had a story that was over on TechCrunch uh, and a bunch of other places as well. So Belvo Latam's answer to Plaid raises $43 million. So Belvo, a Latin American startup which has built an open finance API platform, announced today that it has raised $43 million in a Series A round of funding. Belvo believes the round represents the largest Series A ever raised by a Latam American fintech. It follows their $10 million seed round in May 2020. Belvo works with leading fintechs in Latin America, spanning verticals like the neobanks, credit providers, and personal finance products uh, to help every day. With its developer-first API platform, the company's goal is to build better, more efficient, and more inclusive financial services products uh, in Latin America. I mean, if only we had somebody on the show to talk a little bit more about this one. Like, uh, you know, it really feels like we should go in depth on this one. I mean, Paolo, maybe let's get going. Uh, I mean, congratulations on the raise. That's a, that's a big step. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about Belvo more generally? Uh, and then, I mean, what are you going to do with the money? Yeah, thanks, thanks, David. It, it has been a busy week. I mean, we, we announced the round um, on, on on Tuesday. Um, as you said, it's a forty three million dollar Series A that comes just uh, twelve months after our uh, ten million dollar um, seed round. 
you know, we're very happy because, you know, we, we had uh, participation from, you know, great international and, and fintech investors, including um, Kazakh, um, you know, who's the, the largest um, LATAM fund, you know, backers of uh, you know, a number of, um, of the largest fintechs in, in, in the region. We also have participation from Future Positive, who's, um, you know, an early investor in, in Square, um, you know, FJ Labs, early investor in Checker, Betterman. So, you know, really, really happy to you know, be bringing on board such high caliber investors and also some participation from, you know, a series of, of angels that are, you know, really top-notch um, executors in the space. You know, David Vell is CEO of Nubank. I uh, was already an investor, kind of doubled down in this round. Um, Harsh Sinha as well, the CTO of, uh, of Wise, formerly known as, as TransferWise. So we're, we're really happy with that. And um, in terms of, you know, Belvo, you know, what, what, what we do, I mean, you, you said, uh, you know, we're, we're the last time answer to, to Plaid. We're, uh, I would say we're a little bit different. And, and even if, um, you know, our overarching goal is, uh, is, is similar. So it's, uh, you know, rebalance the, the, the power between, you know, banks and, uh, and, and you know, financial services uh, users. Um, you know, we're, we're very focused on, on LATAM. You know, we're, we're LATAM first, LATAM only. And as you said, right, so we're uh, um, uh, an open finance um, API platform. And basically the, you know, the, the best and easiest way for developers to connect to financial information from their, their end users, whatever use case they're trying to build, whether it's a PFM app, whether it's a, a neobank, whether it's, um, you know, a, a credit solution uh, and so on. And at present, we're, you know, we're live in Mexico, Brazil and Colombia. We're more about us. So we're a 70 person team at the moment, you know, scaling very fast, you know, have one of the things we're very proud of is, you know, we're, we're, we're a gang that comes from, you know, um, from a lot of scars in financial services and, and also in, in other fintechs globally, you know, coming from places like Revolut and 26, Confio, Mercado Pago and, um, and so on. And we're just a little bit over two years old. So, you know, our, our story is just, uh, just beginning and we're pretty international, right? So we have offices in Mexico City, Sao Paulo, Barcelona and uh, remote as well. We, we treat that as a as an office. And we have uh, 25% of folks uh, based remotely. Very good. I mean, two years in and uh, 53 million sort of raised in, in total, um, you know, I mean, to be compared with the sort of likes of Plaid in, in a two-year run, that's uh, that's uh, pretty good going. I mean, they are uh, great comparators for, for you guys, I guess, in that space. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it definitely feels great, um, you know, when, when, when folks kind of compare us to Plaid. I mean, not only you know, because of the fact that, you know, Plaid is obviously, if not the pioneer, but, you know, a pioneer in, in, in the open banking space um, globally. But, you know, because we, we also, you know, truly look up to them and we have a great relationship with the team, right? But that being said, you know, while, and as I was alluding to at the, at the beginning, while our, you know, overarching goals are, are somewhat similar um, to, to theirs, um, you know, we're not merely building an open banking API business here, right? So, Instead, you know, we're, we're building an open finance API uh, platform, which takes in more information than is normally collected just from, from banks, right? Um, and this is, you know, this is, you know, by design because of the region that, that we're in. Um, as you know, Latin America is massively unbanked and underbanked. So the more data sources you can have, the more financial data sources you can have on people on your platform, the better it is for folks building uh, innovative financial services or innovative apps um, on top of it, right? So, you know, whether that's banking data, whether that's fiscal data, whether that's, uh, you know, gig worker, wallets data, electricity bills, you name it, right? So I think, I mean, in essence, you know, you know, we're, we're definitely pushing for for similar outcomes in terms of, you know, democratizing access to, to financial data and empowering end users to, to take that data and support that data and share it with whomever they want, basically. But the complexities and you know idiosyncrasies of, of building our kind of infrastructure to suit the local market needs are you know are totally totally unique, right? Um, and I think just just to you know maybe comment a little bit more about the impact of open finance in 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 Latin America, where you know part of our mission is to enable you know more inclusive financial services through you know access to financial data that is not in banks, right? So. Open finance in LATAM is, you know, is really more about creating a bigger pie of financial services rather than, you know, what you see with, you know, oftentimes or most of the time with open banking in the U.S. and Europe, where it's, you know, open banking serves as a reshuffling of market share between, you know, incumbents, legacy players and fintechs. Mm, it's interesting. Um, so you've got 
43 million dollars burning a hole in your pocket now then what's what's the uh, what's the plan with the money yeah i mean um you know to, to to be honest i mean we feel very fortunate you know and obviously you know you guys cover the world of fintech globally and you know what's been what's been happening in some emerging markets in latam specifically you know we you know the region has been you know going through you know exponential growth in in the last um 12 to, to 18 months and you know as an infrastructure provider we've basically been growing off of that, right? Um, and we saw the opportunity to, to double down and we took it to basically continue doing everything that, that we've been doing. And essentially, you know, the, the funds will be used for, you know, for, for three things or three main areas. So one, we'll continue scaling our, our product development um, efforts, you know, to, to meet kind of, you know, market, market demand. Um, one will be, you know, focusing on expanding our, our offering and connecting more institutions to our API. So currently, our developer partners or our customers are able to connect to over 40 institutions. We're looking to double that by the end of the year. And then also on the product front, you know, we're looking to push further into our data enrichment solutions uh, across markets. So basically, not only serving you, you know, the good old, you know, JSON feed of transactions of, you know, bank account information and so on, but also giving you insights. Uh, we have a really cool um, income verification product and we're looking to double down on, on, on those sorts of products. Um, and also, you know, we're looking to launch a bank-to-bank payment initiation um, offering in Mexico and in Brazil, right? So the, similar to what you might, uh, you might see in, in Europe with, uh, you know, PISPs. Also, you know, number two, you know, we'll look to continue exploring opportunities to expand into new markets within Latin America, that's for sure. You know, we think of ourselves as a pan-LATAM platform, um, and we get a lot of recurring interest from, you know, countries like uh, Peru, Chile, Argentina, and so on. You know, we will evaluate the, the opportunity to, to expand uh, there, maybe sooner rather than later. And then lastly, you know, we, we always say that, you know, without a great team, you can't build a great product and you can't build a great company, right? So we will look to strengthen the, you know, the team across functions and, uh, and locations. So as I said at the beginning, we're currently a team of 70. Uh, we're looking to double that uh, in the next few quarters. And in particular, we're looking to hire um, about 50 engineers uh, in Mexico and, and, and Brazil. So it's going to keep us uh, pretty busy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, Benjamin, isn't it? We, I mean, open banking, open finance, you know, it's uh, it really is a sort of a, a rippling revolution around the world, isn't it, in terms of the impact that it can have. But uh, I mean, and LATAM as well. I mean, new bank from a LATAM perspective really are becoming the the sort of poster child for success for for challenger banks globally. So this feels like a, an interesting sort of a, a great marriage there, you know, both huge geography with huge uh, numbers of potential customers, but a, but a geography that's really ripe for, for sort of change in the, uh, the industry as well. That's the thing. There's such a huge opportunity, isn't there, from fintech and giving people better access to their data. I mean, ultimately, I think the power of open finance is the data ultimately belongs to the customers. And, um, you know, firms like yours are creating that opportunity for customers to access that data and use that data and um, get better services on account of it. Um, I was going to ask you, actually, um, Pablo, which whether you're seeing any differences between the different countries of, of Brazil and Mexico and Colombia in the types of services that, that people are building off the back of your data. You, you mentioned income verification. Are there some services that are, that are really proving really popular in Mexico or Brazil, but not Colombia or any differences between the markets? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, I mean, we, we definitely see that, you know, between how, how we classify our markets, which is, you know, Spanish speaking LATAM and then Brazil, there are differences, you know, Mexico and Colombia are a little bit more similar in terms of what's, what's being built. Um, there's a lot of credit, you know, as a kind of entry point into the, into the money wheel when it comes to fintech. So, you know, and, and pretty much anything kind of under the sun, right? So B2C, B2B, secured, unsecured. So, you know, everything uh, and, and a big, big, big chunk of the population has, you know, never been kind of, um, you know, offered a, a, a credit from a traditional financial institution. In, in Brazil, what we do see is that, you know, there's a little, there's a little bit more sophistication when it comes to, you know, financial services and a little bit more sophistication when it comes to mobile penetration as well, right? So you have platforms, for example, we, we work with one of the largest personal finance management apps uh, in the market that has 7 million users, right? So, Maybe it's, you know, not a big percentage of the Brazilian population, but in sheer numbers, it's, you know, it, it you know, in, in, in a European country, it would be pretty, pretty large, right? Um, but you compare that to, you know, any personal finance management app 
that exists in Colombia or Mexico. And, you know, it's more than 20x or 30x, right? So we do see that in, in, in Brazil, there's a little bit more sophistication in terms of how folks look at, um, you know, and this is end users, uh, you know, B2C type um, applications, how folks look at their money, a little bit more focus on saving, a little bit more focus on investing. For example, there's like three or four really, really large investing, um, you know, fintech first investing uh, platforms where you don't necessarily see those in, in, in Mexico or in, or in Colombia. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Ashling, we've, we've seen it a little bit with uh, almost uh, scaling of organizations in China as well. You know, like we get, uh, my, my brain starts to boggle slightly in terms of some of the numbers that sort of come out with uh, from a, a geogra- other geographical perspective in terms of the populations and the scale of these organizations kind of getting to. But uh, uh, LATAM seems like it's hot, doesn't it? Not, not just literally, but uh, metaphorically as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, Nubank is the sort of goal for a lot of digital banks um, over here, I think. I mean, it has, it's the biggest digital bank in the world. uh, And there's sort of no getting away from that. And I think a lot of fintechs are now starting to look over, European fintechs are now starting to look over to the LATAM region as a really viable um, area for them to tap into, because there is a real lack of as we've kind of spoken about, like a lack of these personal finance management apps and all the rest. So I think it's uh, it's really interesting to watch from a uh, my perspective as a sort of journalist covering the European tech scene, seeing which ones are looking to put down roots over there. Mm, it'd be fascinating. Uh, UK fintech used to expand out into Europe. Maybe it's going to be uh, LATAM next. We we will see, I guess. All right, we better move on, though. We could talk about this one uh, uh, all day. But Pablo, again, congratulations. You know, huge, uh, huge amounts of uh, success in the two-year period. I think with this capital, we're going to see more and more and more, which is great. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, next up story is over on AltFi. So Crowdcube to launch IPO platform for retail investors as Curve smashes the Crowdcube funding record. So Crowdcube, the UK crowdfunding business, will launch a platform for retail investors to participate in initial public offerings to tap into an extended new demand as government ministers consider plans to reduce the institutional dominance of London listings. The group, which channels retail investment into early stage companies, will offer a service for public as well as private share sales from this summer onwards. It's recruiting a capital markets team to work with companies and banks on planned IPOs. Um, There's been a sharp increase in London flotations this year after companies delayed plans during the worst months of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, As we mentioned just last week, Curve broke Crowdcube's fundraising record with 9.9 million crowdfunding in four days. Uh, In fact, Curve were the fastest company to raise 6 million, which they achieved in only two hours and 49 minutes, which is just crazy. Uh, to find out a little bit more about this, we heard from Sam Lawson, VP of Capital Markets at Crowdcube. Let's hear from him now. Despite all the fintech innovation of recent years, and despite their growing market significance, retail investors are, for the most part, still missing out on IPOs. For companies, we know from our decade in the private markets that they see real value, including retail in their raises. Europe's leading fintechs, Curve, Revolut, Free Trade, Monzo, to name a few, have all used crowdfunding to enhance their relationships with their communities and seen tangible results. We also know that, like us, more and more businesses see retail financial inclusion as simply the right thing to do. The problem is that there's no one platform that truly understands the retail perspective and that has the technology and expertise to help companies do this in a seamless and customizable way. Our community IPO product marries the specific elements needed to make the most out of retail inclusion. Our technology is purpose-built, tested and iterated, specifically for retail participation on a mass scale. We have the data, relationships, experience. Our platform even comes with a 1.1 million strong pool of diverse, loyal and committed retail investors. Our vision is to become the marketplace for investment into private and public companies. And so this is a small but meaningful step for our platform, which as well as serving the full length of the private markets through primaries and secondaries, now completes the cycle and doubles down on our mission of supporting entrepreneurs from inception to IPO. 
All right, Ashleen, let's uh, come to you first on on this one. Uh, I mean, I think you, you've you covered both Curve and Crowdcube, uh, not just now, but actually in the past as well. I mean, what do you think on this one? I mean, I think it's a really interesting development for um, Crowdcube because uh, just a month ago they launched CubeX, which was um, encouraging uh, some of the biggest fintechs in Europe to join their secondary um, market. And previously they only allowed... Um, fintechs like Free Trade Revolut that had already crowdfunded on Crowdcube to participate in secondary share sales. But now opening up to the biggest fintechs in Europe is just widening their pool. And with the community IPO launch, it does, when I first saw it and I first read the release, it kind of um, made me think that they were sort of maybe stepping on uh, Primary Brid's toes a little bit, because obviously Primary Brid is the go-to for these kind of uh, things, getting retail investors involved in IPOs. Recently, they um, helped facilitate Pension B and uh, Deliveroo. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. But I can't imagine the people at uh, Primary Bid are too happy about it. (laughs) Well, uh, a little bit of competition in the market is always good, isn't it? But uh, I mean, it's been an interesting period for those guys as well obviously with everything that's happened with the the sort of on and off cedars merger and everything that's there it's good to see that clearly they've continued product development during that period and you know got these things to sort of come out swinging with but you know touching a little bit on on the point that you had around the the sort of secondary market i mean it's it's interesting isn't it a lot of these organizations can do early um you know raises in this way um, and then actually people sort of sit on those uh, shares for a, or pseudo shares for for a very long period of time. But actually that type of secondary market is really interesting, isn't it? For for organisations that even might never go the IPO route, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, nowadays it seems that fintechs just simply aren't IPOing. Like that some of them have ridiculously huge valuations like Stripe, 95 billion, Klarna, 31 billion. So it does very much seem like they're shying away from going public. And I think that the Crowdcube secondary market is a great place to allow retail investors, people who are even just interested in the fintech world in general to get involved and get a slice of the pie and have this sense of ownership about these companies that they um, are involved in and so um, proud of as well. So, I mean, I personally have uh, taken part in some crowdfunding campaigns on Crowdcube as well for companies that I uh, feel very strongly about. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good thing overall. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You you want to support companies you are sort of proud of being a customer of, but also want a slice of the action if they do really, really well as well, right? Mm. So, uh, Benjamin, what do you what do you think on this one? I mean, there's a few an- angles. There's the secondary market piece. There's the the on and off, uh, you know, Crowdcube merger, and, and also this sort of pre IPO uh, platform that they're sort of building out as well. What do you think? I think it's it's is what Ashling just said. It's 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 really about communities, and it's about. I think it's particularly clever for consumer brands. Um, crowdfunding is a great way of getting your customers excited about your brand, and then also investing in your business. It's a great way of raising funds from people who really understand and are passionate about your business. And I love the point Ashling just made about you know I've invested in companies I believe in. People want to have a stake in companies they believe in. A lot of investors, but perhaps particularly younger investors, want to invest in companies they believe in. You know, the returns are on investment accounts and so on, on you know, uh, fixed income are miserable, uh, almost borderline negative. So people are looking for things to invest in. And why not invest in companies you believe in? So I think Crowdclue, by creating another set of products, is giving its uh, corporate customers, you know, the, sort of, um, the, the fundraisers, an opportunity to get closer to their customers. Um, it's good for their business. Uh, um, you know, it's a win-win, um, provided you know, provided they avoid you know some sort of some extremely dodgy company coming on. You know, provided they you know, provided that doesn't happen, um, it's 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 a really good opportunity. I think it's a very smart move, um, and I think it'll it'll cement their place in the market. And um, yeah. <laughs> make their rivals uncomfortable. Mm. I think as well, um, given that they're probably still reeling from the um, CMA nixing the Cedars merger, I think they're doing very well to cement their position as the 
most prominent crowdfunding platform, particularly within the world of fintech. So when you think of Cedars and Crowdcube together, personally for me, I see Cedars more as a a lifestyle sort of brand. You see a lot of um, like I think I've seen like food companies uh, crowdfunding, drinks companies crowdfunding on Cedars, whereas Crowdcube is very prominent within the fintech industry itself. And I think launching Cubex and community IPO is just going to continue to solidify that position as the most prominent source of crowdfunding within the industry. I agree. I mean, it feels like don't, uh, crowd coming, uh, crowdfunding has come such a long way, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like about 15 seconds ago, Monzo was raising, what was it, sort of 96 seconds and they raised a million or something stupid. But, uh, you know, it really has become more and more of a, a mainstream way, as you say, of sort of engaging your customers. But Pablo, is this something you've uh, you've thought about? I mean, uh, the community is a, in a big sense and the community for your type of product is, is not just end-to-end consumers, but obviously it's the the people who use your product from a developer perspective all the way through the stack pretty well PayPal developers so you never know this might be a good angle yeah i mean to, to be honest i mean it, it's it's not something we, we we had thought about given the um you know the nature of our um kind of business you know purely being b2b and i think you know rare occasion do, do you find um b2b businesses you know crowdfunding on on, on these platforms but but yeah i mean it's a you know um, interesting concept, and 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 that's totally right. I mean, you know, developers are not only a you know a bunch that you know is is, is well versed in you know in, in many things finance, and but also very interested in in being involved in companies they're they're passionate about, um, and also very influential, right? And in, in in terms of you know how they can swing towards a certain product or another. I think there was that you know famous where uh, there is that famous. Um, you know, marketing campaign by by Twilio, right? Which is uh, ask your developer, right? Which uh, you know, so very very influential in terms of um, you know the decision uh, decision making. But yeah, I think you know when it comes to kind of um, crowdfunding in, in in Latam, it's a little bit a little bit different. Um, I would say versus the UK or versus uh, you know Europe, definitely still in kind of its its infancy uh, a little bit. Uh, there are there are some some platforms out there, and hopefully, it, you know, it kind of um, it, it takes off at uh, at some point. Very good. All right, we will watch the space then. Uh, all right, we better take a little bit of a break. We'll be back with you very shortly. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process. YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioral intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.yougov.com. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. Okay, uh, the next story we have is over on Finextra. Cash to account for just 7% of in-store purchases by 2024. So uh, cash will account for just 7% of in-store purchases by 2024, according to calculations from WorldPay. The study found that cash usage for in-store purchases in the country declined from 27% in 2019 to just 13% last year, with the pandemic fueling a pretty big shift in consumer payment preferences. Across all countries studied, cash usage dropped by 10% in 2020 to 20% of transactions. The WorldPay report predicts that many European countries, including Denmark, Norway and Sweden, will be almost cashless by 2024. Additionally, the growth of non-cash payment methods will primarily split between cards and mobile payments, with mobile payments expected to compromise a third of POS market in 2024. I mean, that's a pretty big uh, sort of declaration there that we will sort of almost uh, eradicate cash from from society because, I mean, there's such a, a large group of people who still, I mean, my mum is one of them, quite frankly, like still use cash like on a, on a day-to-day basis for for buying things. But Ashling, what do you, what do you think on this one? Do you, do you think that's a, a decent prediction or uh, or where do you think we'll end up? I mean, I am completely cashless and have been for 
I don't know how long. I just use my Apple wallet everywhere I go. I even I don't even leave the house with a purse anymore. I literally just leave with my phone. Um, I'm very much in the camp of I think cash is is done. I I I even some of my friends like I don't really know anyone that uses it that much. And I think one of the main things was quite early on in the pandemic, I think it must have been about February, the World Health Organization urged people to stop using cash because banknotes and coins could had had the potential to carry coronavirus. And that obviously just sent cash usage absolutely plummeting. Like no one wanted to use it. No one wanted to touch it. It was, I remember stories of people leaving, spraying anti-back on their notes and leaving them out to dry. And it's, it was just kind of a bit of a, a crazy time back then, but I can totally see why the cash is totally declining. I mean, I'm, I also think I'm of the generation that is much more comfortable to use uh, digital payment methods than potentially older people and other people. But I think it's the way that society is moving, but we need to make sure that as we move that way, that we protect the most vulnerable people in society because so many people don't have access to bank accounts and can just rely on cash to stay alive, to pay their bills, to buy food. And so I think it's really important that when we move forward towards this cashless society, we don't forget those who are potentially vulnerable to being left by the wayside. And there are loads of great things. Like I know in um, Bristol and Bath, there's um, a program called Billy Chip and um, people can go into local shops and cafes and buy these um, blue coins that are worth a couple of pounds and hand them out to homeless people because obviously no one has cash nowadays, so people don't have cash to freely hand out. So they can go and buy these preloaded chips and homeless people can go into cafes and have a hot meal, have a hot cup of tea, cup of coffee. And um, I think that's a really interesting initiative. Yeah, it's interesting that sort of digitizing physical distribution at that stage, isn't it? It's an interesting one. I mean, do you know, what? I'm a, I'm a really, um, I'm a, I'm a good Cub Scout me, so I always have a fiver on me just in case, you know. what I mean, but, uh, but also, um, I live out in the sticks, so I live in. Uh, anybody listening to this, I live on the the bump of England, so out on the east coast. Um, to be honest with you, I'm lucky if I get mobile signal around here. Never mind, uh, never mind. POS terminals that accept Apple Pay. So it's uh, it, it, almost the outside of London, the change comes about in terms of almost cash being a, a necessity as a backdrop, you know what I mean? Taxis, all sorts of stuff out this way. So it's um, it's interesting, but I am with you. I mean, in the pandemic, um, it's interesting, isn't it? We started making, uh, you know, fivers, teners and twenties out of this plastic, which was perfectly capable of transporting coronavirus. Like it's like mind boggles really, doesn't it? But Benjamin, are you uh, are you approaching cashless now, or are you uh, still holding on to a fiver like me? No, I hardly ever use cash. Um, I was actually thinking earlier, uh, when did I last use cash? I I went and got my hair cut about a month ago. I went into the barbers, I got my hair cut, and I went to pay, and they didn't accept um, electronic payment, much to my surprise. So I walked to the bank and came back. But it, you always feel bad when you 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 sort of buy something and can't pay for it. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't held cash for about a year. I think I've got a couple of pound coins that I had, you know, before we sort of went into, you know, the first lockdown. I just, I just don't need it. But like you, David, I do live in a rural area and occasionally come across um, situations where I do need cash. Um, but I think really, you know, that what the pandemic has done is it's changed people's habits because people are very habitual about payments. We don't tend to think about how we make a payment. We just do it the way we always do it. And so what the pandemic did is it took a lot of people in maybe an older generation or more traditionally minded people, suddenly they weren't using cash. Suddenly they were buying much more online anyway. And of course, you can't pay in cash online. So suddenly they're using cash less, starting to be forced to use new payment methods. And I think that's what's really triggered this change is the pandemic. You know, it's the thing Ashling said about potential transmission of disease, buying online more. And suddenly people's habits have changed and people have realized, oh, actually, I can pay electronically. Hey, I can use my contactless card anywhere. I can use Apple Pay. I can use PayPal, whatever. Um, I think this is a permanent change. It was a trend that was happening anyway that's been accelerated. So, yeah, I think this is going to continue. And I think what WorldPay is saying is 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 right um, in, in the broad outline. Yep. 
Well, we wanted to see whether this was actually sort of reality or not. So uh, the good people over at YouGov actually managed to get hold of some data collected, especially for, for this show at this this stage, to, to try and back it up. So there's a few statistics here. 45% of Brits uh, use a cash machine less than once a month, and 12% say that they never use a cash machine. Like I can't remember the last time I used a cash machine, if I'm honest with you, which it must be a long time ago. And if you think about the amount of people who have to manage those networks and manage those machines, there's probably a huge amount of wastage in the system as it goes right now. 30% of Brits say that, that they supported shops refusing cash during the pandemic. So, you know, people were very up for moving to contactless, Ashling, like uh, like yourself. Uh, 66% of Brits age 55 plus say they recall using cash within the last months uh, as of 2021. This varies by age with 18 to 34 year olds having gone the longest without using cash. I don't know what group, I don't know if you're just, are you just in that, that group, Ashling? Oh yeah, I'm 24, so definitely Justin. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're the you're the early edge yeah. of that group. Though. So so you, I mean you you um, you fit within that that spectre then in terms of actually like you know the younger people get the less likely it is that they're going to be carrying cash. I mean from from my perspective within the Brewer household, any cash or coins that I do are quickly gobbled up by my, my my children, quite frankly. But uh, but I think they use them more as toys now than savings, quite frankly. So uh, it's interesting to see what happens. Um, I mean, Pablo, cash in LATAM is still quite high. And as you say, you sort of mentioned earlier on in terms of uh, this sort of unbanked population, then cash is still sort of king from a LATAM perspective, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, looking at you know, some rough numbers, I mean, in, 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 on average in LATAM, you know, 50% of folks are either unbanked or underbanked. Some countries, you know, more than others, like Mexico, seven, 70%, as many as 70% are um, unbanked or underbanked. But when you look at actually, you know, the transactionality, um, you know, up to 90% of transactions still happen in, uh, in cash, right? So, you know, the, the, the potential there of disruption um, is massive, right? In terms of, um, you know, not only, you know, the, the, the mobile banking or, you know, the, the fintechs that issue you cards, um, but more and more the innovations that happen, you know, at, at point of sale at e-commerce, right? So you have... Um, an extremely nascent but extremely high growth, um, you know, buy now, pay later, um, you know, uh, movement as well. You have a, as many as, you know, in a specific country, as many as five, as five players um, tackling that opportunity. Um, obviously, innovations around, you know, point of sale uh, payments. And, and some of them are even like as neat as being like, um, you know, completely um, verticalized, right? So um, there's a company out in Mexico that does buy now, pay later um, only for selling um, like water coolers uh, in homes. Uh, That's literally all they do. Um, A company called Gravity, they raised like $3 million just last week. So fascinating company um, and, um, you know, innovating in a very like verticalized, uh, verticalized way. So definitely a lot of room to, um, you know, to disrupt cash more and more. Obviously, you know, the reality is that, you know, folks oftentimes need to use cash out of, out of necessity. You know, you, you walk the streets of Mexico City, Bogota, Sao Paulo, you know, people need to make a living on a, on a daily basis from, you know, just pure cash transactions. But what's really neat as well is that, you know, you have these, um, you know, these POS companies that are really growing super fast, like physical POS companies, like, uh, Mercado Pago, which is, um, you know, um, a subsidiary of Mercado Libre, which is the, the Amazon of, uh, of LATAM, you know, traded on the NASDAQ, um, you know, I think LATAM's most valuable, um, you know, if not company, for sure, tech company. Um, and they're innovating big time, not only in cities, but also in rural areas, right? So they, they have like engagement teams going out to rural areas to distribute these like, you know, your usual kind of like you know, the thing, you, the dongle you stick into your phone or your, or your iPad and uh, really making waves and, and doing a lot of, you know, CapEx investment and, and, and user acquisition efforts um, or merchant acquisition efforts on, on that front, right? So obviously still a long way to go, but as, as anywhere, the, the pandemic has accelerated things um, massively, believe it or not, um, you know, in, in many places in Latin America, it wouldn't be unusual for you to go, you know, to the bank on a you know, Tuesday morning and spend, two, three hours just to get, you know, something done uh, at the bank, right? And and that happens when you go withdraw money, that happens when you go, you know, um, get a loan or, or whatever. So, um, so a lot, long ways to go for sure. But again, um, loads of room for, uh, for disruption. 
for anybody who's bought a mortgage in the UK lately, that uh, that trend is uh, is not just uh, sort of contained to uh, to Latam. But I think the trend, as you as you sort of say, really is probably cashless rather than cashless uh, at this stage in terms of the sort of global view. But uh, but definitely you'll sort of be heading in that direction. Uh, right, we better move on. Uh, TechCrunch was where the next story was. This is SVB-led 100 million investment in Chippacash, Africa's most valuable startup. Chippacash, a three-year-old startup that facilitates cross-border payments across Africa, has closed a $100 million Series C round to introduce more products and grow out its team. In November 2020, the African cross-border fintech startup raised 30 million Series B, led by Ribbit Capital and Jeff. Bezos. Uh, that is a pretty big lineup there of uh, investors. Last year, the company which offers mobile-based no-fee peer-to-peer payments services was present in seven countries. So that is Ghana, Uganda, Nigeria, Tanzania, Rwanda, South Africa, and Kenya. Um, now it is it has expanded to the UK, the first market that it's reaching out outside of Africa. Um, what do you think on, on this one, Benjamin? I mean, it's a that's a big investment, but I mean, when you plug together, you know, the the countries that it's actually representing in, uh, similar to the conversation we were having about LATAM, that is a lot of people in that geography, right? That was what I was going to say. I mean, we've we've been talking about Latin America and the huge opportunity there, but you know, Africa is a massive continent of you know fifty plus vibrant countries, and in those countries, you've got a lot of people who've been unbanked, who've been excluded from um, financial services, and fintech is creating this huge opportunity to bring those people in and you know make their lives better. So um, it's not surprising to see investment um, going into. To, to African fintechs because there's huge opportunities to make people's lives better and in the process, um, you know, to build some very successful new companies. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't realized before what um, Jeff Bezos's uh, investment fund was called, but it's called Bezos Expeditions, which um, sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like more like a holiday firm than it does an investment firm, doesn't it? But uh, but at the same time, he's got a lot of money, so that's uh, that's good good for him. Um, Ashley, what what do you think on this one? It, um, it's interesting that they're choosing now to come to the UK as well. Yeah, I mean, we don't really, unfortunately, at Altfire cover um, African fintechs that much, but I mean, speaking about. Africa in general, it's very similar to LATAM in the sense that it's just got this huge untapped potential by um, fintechs. Like I think isn't Nigeria that with the country that buys the most Bitcoin in the world? I think like a third of Nigerians have invested in third of I think it is a third of Nigerian adults have invested in Bitcoin. So there's obviously this huge potential. There's this huge appetite for it as well. And um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that they've uh, decided to hop over to the UK. I mean. I look forward to seeing what they uh, get up to over here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when I um, I've spent quite a lot of time, sort of, um, I mean, I've been uh, out to places like Rwanda in the past to uh, to do various different things, and it is amazing how you know people talk about leapfrogging uh, from a, a country perspective in terms of infrastructure and capability, but um, Rwanda is is so high on contactless, but also micro insurance and the purchase process around all of those things. Mobile has just created such a an explosion of opportunity there. I mean, to the point where actually, I mean, I, I swear to God, I get I got better mobile phone signal in Rwanda than I do Norfolk. You know, it's just kind of insane in terms of those things. And because of that, then actually they can create uh, really stable services for people uh, wherever they are. So it's uh, amazing to see. Um, it's great to see Africa getting six great success stories in this space as well. And, you know, with good investment comes uh, greater opportunities sort of coming through. Uh, we better move on. Um, there is a load of stories this week we just didn't get to cover, unfortunately, but um, we're going to kind of have a bit of a whistle-stop tour through them now. Um, Benjamin, do you want to pick up the first one? Yes. So the first story is um, Funding Circle and Atom Bank uh, announcing a £300 million lending partnership. So Funding Circle, which is the UK's largest small business loan platform, and Atom Bank, which was the first app-based bank in the UK, have announced a partnership to provide 300 million of new funding to small businesses across the UK. Um, and so with 350 million that had already been lent through the funding circle, this brings Atom's total up to about 650 million pounds. And what it's going to do is Atom Bank is going to harness funding circles uh, machine learning capabilities to deploy new funding to about 4,000 UK small businesses um, 
Funding Circle has got this instant decision lending technology that enables small businesses to apply for finance um, very quickly in about six minutes um, and making lending decisions in about nine seconds, which is almost too fast because if you say no very quickly, um, <laughs> people think, well, you haven't looked at it properly. But what it's doing is it's helping Atom provide small businesses with fast and simple access to finance, um, enabling Atom to sort of help its business grow, but also power an economic recovery in the UK. So, you know, I think this is a super interesting story. We've seen banks partnering with sort of peer-to-peer platforms in the past to provide funding. Um, it's a great way for Atom to deploy funding to small businesses more quickly. Funding Circle sometimes has, you know, insights or knows a little bit about some of those businesses and can assess them maybe a little bit quicker. Um, so to me, it's a very logical partnership. I think fintech's all about partnering and figuring out how can we, um, how can we deploy funding more effectively? So, you know, smart move by uh, Atom Bank and smart move by Funding Circle. I think we'll see more deals of that type. Very good. All right. Next up, there was a story over on TechCrunch, which was Homeward secures $371 million to help people make all cash offers on houses. Getting really numb to big numbers at this stage. I'm just saying, like everybody. Uh, Homeward, which aims to help people buy homes faster, announced today that it has raised $136 million in a Series B funding round at a valuation just north of $800 million. Uh, Homeward's model is to make an all-cash offer on behalf of customers wanting to buy a house. I mean, it's super interesting, this one. I mean, if anybody who hasn't listened to the mortgage show that we put out recently, go listen to it. Just bought a house? It sucks. The process is terrible. Like, and actually everything in the middle there is uh, is almost opaque on purpose. So organizations like Homewood coming in and, and really trying to change that and bring about a little bit more uh, simplicity for everybody in that buying process uh, is really, really good for, for everybody. So uh, great to see what this one and look forward to seeing what they do with the money. Benjamin. So the next one is uh, comes from the States and this is Truebill, which has raised $45 million uh, uh, for its personal finance app. So that's like $2 million more than you raised, Pablo, I think. <laughs> it's not, it's um, not a competition. It's not a competition. <laughs> So um, Truebill is a is a sort of personal finance uh, startup. This is its Series D funding round. So you know they're they're, they're sort of a lot older than you are, uh, and Pablo or as a, as a company, um, and it offers a whole series of tools. It's sort of personal finance management, um, helping people take control of their finances. Um, it's got subscription. Uh, tracking to help you uh, cancel unwanted subscriptions. Uh, they also help you do things like renegotiate your bills, and then they take a little bit of a cut of the savings you make. Um, it's also working on things like a wealth, wealth management dashboard to try and help people centralize all their assets and their debt. And they've had huge growth as a business. They've gone from, they've pretty much doubled uh, over the past six or seven months from 1 million to 2 million users. Um, so really, really interesting company. Um, very interesting to see um, personal finance or management really finding a really good sort of revenue model, um, uh, getting more funding. Uh, there's a lot of competition in the States. There's a lot of other firms like Trim doing similar sorts of things. Um, so a little bit of an arms race here about who can, who can win customers, who can become the sort of dominant provider in the US. Mm, yeah, going to be interesting to see how that uh, that market and uh, really sort of plays out. But uh, okay, folks, and this is the and finally story for the end of the show. So this is Sandwell Bitcoin mine found stealing electricity. So this is a story that was over on BBC News. Um, a suspected Bitcoin mining operation with around 100 computers illegally has been stealing electricity. And what I really found funny about this one, if I'm honest with you, is that the police went in expecting to find a cannabis farm, um, but uh, but it turned out it was a Bitcoin farm instead. So uh, I wonder if, uh, is Bitcoin the new cannabis? I know a lot of people sort of say it's the gateway drug into investing, don't they? But uh, I'm not sure whether they quite meant it uh, in that quite in that sense or not. So officers said that the cryptocurrency mine had effectively stolen thousands of pounds of electricity. Uh, inquiries within the network operator Western Power Distribution found an illegal connection to the electricity supply. Detectives said they had been tipped off about lots of people visiting the units throughout the day. And a police drone picked up a lot of heat coming from the building. Yeah, it does take a lot of electricity, doesn't it? Uh, Sergeant Jennifer Griffin said, given the site, uh, it had all the hallmarks of a cannabis cultivation setup. And I believe that there was a, only the second such crypto mine we've ever encountered in the West Midlands. It's going to be interesting to see as this kicks off more and more, isn't it? But it's interesting that they they decided to try and, uh, you know, appropriate electricity to mine Bitcoin for free. Um, I, like, 
who owns Bitcoin on the on the uh, the call? Uh, Ashley, have you, are, you, are you holding any Bitcoin? No, I must admit, I don't really touch crypto at all. Um, so is that fingers burnt before, or are you just like, look, I'm just not getting involved in this uh, in this market? I don't know. I think it. So, I was one of the stupid people that bought into the uh, Reddit versus Wall Street saga, and to be fair, I did make some money. However, I think just looking at it and the fact that it can be controlled by one's ma- one man's tweets does put me off a little bit. Um, I must admit. Inevitably, I probably will buy some, but no, I don't hold any right now. Uh, Pablo, how about yourself? A little bit, a little bit. Um, I mean, not 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 uh, you know a, a large or relevant percent of uh, you know my, my investments, but yeah. But I like to I like to dabble. I like to to you know to to research and and I think also you know it's um, you know in, in Latin America it's not only pretty you know, big and popular. I mean, you have companies, uh, you have a uh, Bitcoin or, you know, crypto exchanges like Bitso, for example, became a unicorn. They're out of Mexico. They became a unicorn just last month after a 250 million uh, series C, I believe. But it's also, you know, a really good way for folks to be um, kind of protected from, you know, hyperinflation in many of these countries. Uh, no wonder a lot of crypto users out of Argentina and, and countries like that. So yeah, I, 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 um, I like crypto. I like um, kind of um, its nature as an alternative asset, but, you know, with moderation. It's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, Bitcoin has a bad reputation for being highly, highly volatile, doesn't it? But uh, all the charts right now show that uh, GBP is probably more volatile than, uh, than, than, than cryptocurrencies are, which is, uh, which is kind of worrying. Uh, how about you, Benjamin? Are you, uh, do, you, do you hold any Bitcoin? I'm a blockchain fan, but a Bitcoin skeptic. Um, I think I think I like my investments to have some basis in uh, in sort of underlying in the underlying economy and be able to point to how is that creating value. Um, Bitcoin to me looks like quite a speculative bubble. I know there's a lot of people speculating it, and that drives the bubble. But um, unlike some of the other uses of blockchain, I can't see clearly what is this being used for. And I, I, I do take Pablo's point that people are holding it because it's less volatile than some other currencies and as a way of moving assets out of other currencies. Um, I'm just not convinced about it as a long-term investment personally. But I do think blockchain and distributed ledger more widely has huge potential. And, and so um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, if you couldn't pay for your haircut with card, you're definitely not going to be able to pay for it with Bitcoin. So uh, on that note, then uh, it's probably worth us wrapping up, isn't it? Uh, all right. That wraps up this week's show, everybody. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about everything that you're up to, Pablo? Yeah. So um, we're, on, we're on Twitter on uh, at JoinBelvo um, and also personally on Twitter on um, at Vigera Pablo. Very good. Ashley. Well, you can find me writing stories at altfi.com and uh, tweeting a little bit at, uh, at Ashling Finn with three N's. Very good. Benjamin. So obviously I'm on 11fs.com um, and 11fs is obviously on Twitter and, and LinkedIn and so on. And so am I. So I'm, I'm, uh, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Very good. Uh, do you know what? Drop me an email. Uh, I fancy some more emails. Drop me an email, david at 11fs.com. Uh, let me know where you're listening to the podcast. I'm just curious, quite frankly. Uh, all right. Thank you very much for listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please feel free to subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channels at this stage. Just search for 11fs or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Goodbye.